Let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the computer. And thank you for the opportunity to be here today. And thank you for everything that's gone before us. We just pray that you be glorified in all that we say and do here this morning. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt the, uh, the going to Texas discussion. No, I'll be staying here. Okay, great. Thanks. So everybody listening to the podcast can appreciate that. We're talking about the Reformation, and uh, uh, I, I keep being, feeling bad because, like, uh, Scott for, wasn't here for the, the vacation for the for the Vikings thing, and Sarah missed the end of the Renaissance, and I was terrified that you might miss today, Randy, because today it's we're John Calvin. It's John Calvin, right? Exactly. It's very exciting here what we're doing. So, because Reformation, which has been kind of scattershot, I mean, everybody's just going. We, we, don't, we know we don't agree with, with Rome, but we don't know where to go with this. It's finally beginning to nestle into three major camps. One, Lutheranism, obviously. He kind of kicked this part of the Reformation off. Second is what is oftentimes referred to as the Radical Reformation, because these are the guys that said, chuck everything, start from Scripture again, um, with the Anabaptists. But now we're going to, the group that's saying, actually, instead of, instead of being radically chucking everything, why don't we be systematic about what we're doing? And so, we're going to talk about Calvinism, starting today. So, where we left off, 1533, Jean Calvin, if that's how you pronounce that, was converted, but since that's hard to pronounce, we're going to call him Jean Calvin, right? Because he's French. So, Jean Calvin becomes a Christian in 1533. No, stop that. In 1533, computer is Desperately wanting to be snarky. Ah, born in 1509, and he, he trains from a, from an early age to be a priest. In fact, when he's 12, he gets himself tonsured. You know, gets the, the head shavy thing. He didn't become a priest, didn't become a novitiate or anything. He did this because he's like, this is me trying to be a priest. It's like it's like a little kid dressing like Batman. It's like, Duh. I'm dressing like a priest. Um, so he's desperate to be a priest. Studies theology under some of the best people that his dad can can uh, can buy for him, basically, because he's got a little bit of money when he's growing up. But around 1525, his dad decided, no, no, I don't want you to be a priest. I want you to be a lawyer. That's where the money is. So that is not a new thing. The dad's going, no, 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 that doesn't sound like a good job. This, this, this is where you're going to have some money. 500 years ago, this is the exact same way. Sends him to Orléans, just outside of, of Paris. What? Which is exactly what Luther... It, that's what I was going to say. Exactly like Luther. Yeah, good. Exactly like Luther. This guy's now trained as a theologian and as a lawyer. What were you guys? I was just saying I had a similar conversation with my father about money. Yeah, there you go. Don't go into ministry. No, no. Don't get Don't go to art. Don't go to art. Starving oh, artists. Money. Art's where the money is. Anyway. When you're dead. <laughs> yeah, you have to be dead, but your children are going to eat well. Anyway, so he's 24 years old. He's a lawyer, and he, he just has this sudden sense that everything I've been doing is wrong. I have this condemnation in my heart for everything that's come before in, this, in, in my life, and I realize something has to change. I have to. I have to rethink this. I've been doing this wrong. I've had the wrong motivations, and, and I got to change fundamentally. He said he quote received some ta some taste and knowledge of, the, of true godliness. He's just like, and it just wasn't enough. Once I once I tasted what God was like, it wasn't enough just to say, well, I'll just be a nice lawyer. I'll be a relatively nice Christian. He's like, no, no, I want to. That, that that little guy that said, I'm going to dress like to me priest or Batman. I'm going to dress like Batman. That little guy coming back and going, this is what God hardwired you for, is to really throw yourself into this. You shouldn't just let yourself fall into a more worldly mindset. So, Did he have a role model at 12? Um, actually, he had a couple of role models at 12. He had a good friend at, at, at age 24. He had a good friend named Nicholas Kopp, who became the rector or chancellor at the University of Paris. And the guy used his inaugural address... No, do not restart. Do not restart my computer. Stop that. Anyway. <laughs> ah, updates. No, no, stop it. Anyway. What am I talking about? Oh, yes, okay. 
is an inaugural address to compare and contrast what the Beatitudes say with what the Roman Catholic Church is doing. Now remember, university, when we think of universities, we tend to think of secular institutions. At this time, a university is, is, a, time, is a place primarily where uh, good Catholic scholars go to learn how to be really good Catholic scholars. This is where you go to learn how to be a really good priest. You study theology, etc. So this is way Catholic university. And the new chancellor says, let me talk about how we need to reform the Catholic Church. At a time when Luther and all these other people are doing reformations and getting killed for it. How popular do you think this is going to be? I don't think it's that. Nobody was happy. Everybody was so unhappy that top, and everybody who supported him had to basically run for their lives. Because uh, the Catholic Church came down on this hard set. To, to judge the Catholic Church and say, let's judge it against the Beatitudes and say, is this what we're doing, is heresy. So, you guys are heretics. If you support this guy, if you stay here in Orleans, you're heretics. So, Luther left, not Luther, Calvin left and went to live in Switzerland and studied under Twinglian philosophers and quasi-Twinglian guys like Johannes <coughs> or Colum. Podius, which is really a hard word to say, and I practiced it this week and I still mangled here. It's basically just, it's a Greek version of his, uh, of his uh, uh, German name, which was uh, John Hauslamp. And, but he, he wanted a Greek version, so he went with Oikolampadius. Anyway, so he learned under the Twinglings. Pardon me? We may look at some Greek words in that one. I think that's the one you want. That's, it, that's the one you want. Um, where was it going with this? Oh, I know. Um, Oiko Lampadius. That's not that hard to say once you get it. Anyway, but so he studies under the Twingliums and, and learns their basic take on, on theology and realizes he needs to take that a little bit farther. That same year, 1533, an Anabaptist pastor named Jakob Hutter uh, moved his congregation from northern Italy into Moravia because they were undergoing such persecution. He's just like, we've got to find a place that's relatively safe. And Moravia, that is at this point in something that is part of the Austrian um, Empire. So in, in, in Moravia, uh, they actually had some tolerance, because Jan Hus, remember him from 100 years ago? He'd been working in Moravia, and they'd said, well, we kind of like him. We're going to give him some uh, safe haven to do his work. And so Jakob Hutter said, oh, well, Moravia is the place to go. That's the one place that an Anabaptist can go without getting stomped on pretty bad. And so the Hutterites preached nonviolence. They preached communal living. Um, we're going to share all these goods. They went back at Acts chapter 2 and said, remember at the end of Acts chapter 2 where everybody had everything in common, they shared all their goods, they broke bread together. Hutter said, yeah, that's, that's what the church should be like. Let's do it that way. So you've got this, this burgeoning little Anabaptist community nestled in, in Moravia. It's going to be nice. 1536, three years after he's become a Christian, John Calvin publishes the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is kind of a big deal. Um, but he'd been studying, like I said, studying theology his whole life. And so he's putting everything he knows about theology together with everything that his lawyer's mind knows how to put together in terms of systematic arguments and things that are internally consistent. So... Uh, his Institutes of the Christian Religion becomes this, this first major reformed systematic theology textbook. Melanchthon had put together a systematic theology, and it was solid. Other people have done things, but this is, this is a pretty intensive one that, that ties together everything that's come before. He ties together Anselm and, and, and Augustine and all sorts of different things to try to say, how does this all go together consistently? Uh, he introduces it and dedicates it to the new French king, King Francis I. And he says, basically the reason I'm doing this is because the Anabaptists stink. Uh, they've thrown out everything, and they're being chaotic. They have a religion without any apparent form. And we need to have structure and systemization, because these guys are just going willy-nilly crazy stuff. Right? Thank you, thank you. Because if Calvin says it, of course it's true. Well, it, it is. It is so much true. When they say willy nilly, that means 
we're not in power and control over you. It's not that you're not following exactly what Scripture says. Well, okay, that is one interpretation. Yes, is that uh, there is no absolute power structure, therefore there, there can't be any structure. Well, question. Yeah, I'm not saying yeah. it. Okay, I'm right. listening. But that is that is one take on it, is that people go, well, they're just nuts. They have no authority. They have no power structure. They've got no hierarchy. They're just a bunch of people saying, let's live like the Bible. The crazy loons. You know, so yeah. But they also, if you say Anabaptist, there's no guarantee that you're going to know what that church is like. Because it's it's that club and how they interpret scripture. And so he's got a point where you go, okay, there's no systematic theology to this movement. All there is is, hey, let's get back to the Bible. I am amazed at how many churches today still say, we have no statement of faith, we just do the Bible. And they totally have a statement of faith. You know, Whether they were articulated or not, even though they claim they don't have a statement of faith, or they claim that they don't have a systematic theology, you go, you do, you just haven't necessarily thought it through. It really so is. But anyways, the people are like, no, we just go back to the Bible. What about this? Now, the Bible doesn't say it, but it clearly means this. Anyway, so... Uh, one of the reasons why I, I, I wanted to take a little bit of time and look at this is that what Calvin did not only set the stage for Calvinism and for a lot of Reformed theology based on what he came up with, but also formed the basis for people who reacted against what he said. So either, either you agree or disagree with Calvin, but you can kind of argue that the Reformation is kind of everything that happened before Calvin and then everything that happened after Calvin. This, this became a, a, a benchmark moment in the, in the Reformation because everybody reacted to this positively or negatively, but it, it, it became what everybody was reacting Anyway. It compared with everything else. Exactly. Exactly. So he starts by talking about God. God is obviously in three parts, right? He's a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he brought back some classic early century Christianity by saying, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and they all are God, though. They're all distinct persons within a trinity. We all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's nice to have this nailed down, because there were people who had been coming up here who had said, oh, but maybe God is primarily just God the Father, and then he has appendages as the, as, uh, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and Calvin's like, no, no, let's, let's get the main things the main things. There's a trinity, three parts to God. And if God is this omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign, then he's sovereign over everything, everywhere, all the time. He knows everything that's happening, he knows everything that's going to happen. He's in charge of absolutely everything, which makes a certain amount of sense, right? If he created everything, and is completely powerful, and knows everything, then he's overseeing and touching every action that everybody does all the time. Now, Luther is jumping up and down going, yeah, because I said we have no free will. Calvin's like, no, no, we, you have free will, but it's bounded by God's sovereignty. There's a logic to what he's saying. He says Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. Again, we argued that for centuries, right? Everybody's got that nailed down. But that's part of what he uses to say, I agree with Swingley and I disagree with Luther. If Jesus was genuinely human, then Jesus could only be at one place at one time. There's no way that Jesus is physically present every time everybody takes communion all around the world. There's a certain logic to that, right? It's like, Jesus is not in communion. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus doesn't live in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Let's get this straight. Jesus is standing in heaven with God. That's the only place he is. Now, you might find yourself bristling at that, going, but I like to think that I have Jesus in me. You have the Spirit of Christ in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. That should be good enough. Which should be swell, what with him being, you know, a fully... I could go back to that whole Trinity page. That should be cool. But this is, when, this is a lawyer going, stop and think about what you believe. Don't just feel it through. Think. Okay? So he's spiritually present. His spirit is there. His spirit enables a mystical spiritual grace to be conferred on the participants. But his physicality is not there. Now, Luther is struggling with this, right? And all the Anabaptists went, no, nope, you lost me now. You know, the, the, when he says, Jesus is not physically present in the Eucharist, all the Lutherans leave the room. When he says, 
but he's mystically present and thus conveys a mystical grace upon you in communion, all the Anabaptists leave the room, going, no, 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 it's a remember. So he, he's coming at it from a different perspective. The Twinglians are all going, yeah, he's our boy. Yeah, we totally agree with him. They don't keep agreeing. <laughs> he says, Christ's ministry fulfills three basic roles. And he got this from Eusebius. Not everything that Calvin put in his, in his institutes is all from Calvin. He's synthesized. <gasps> but he's synthesizing centuries of other people's thoughts together. And so Eusebius had, had argued, pardon me? I thought it was original. I know, I know. A lot of it is. Jesus is a prophet because he spoke God's word like the prophets do, right? Yes. Jesus is a priest because he mediates between God and his people. He, he makes sacrifice, one major sacrifice, just like a priest would do. He's a king because he reigns over the church and over the heavens. Right? Therefore, these, these three roles. Now, before I go any further, I mean, is there any of this that you guys go, oh, that totally makes sense. It's a nice systematic way of looking at it. Anything that you go, oh, I kind of wince at this. How do you react to Calvin if you're reading this? That's a good point. You know, like, I don't feel like there's the, the, like, God is with you as Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Now, he is going to talk about, uh, about more of a relationship, but you're right, he comes at it from a more, it's a different kind of vibe than, say, the Anabaptists are talking about being, being in relationship with God as if you're, mar you're married. You know, this, this kind of intimacy. Calvin does talk about intimacy with God. He does talk about relationship with God. But it is, it is, it is more like your relationship is that God is the big dude that is helping you. Um, noblesse oblige almost kind of kind of concept. Uh, the, the obligation of the noble to be there and help the, the commoner. So I, I, I'm not, I, I, you're right in that there is a vibe of a little bit more separation. But, um, there is still a sense of, of a relationship with God, and it's certainly several steps um, from from the, the Catholics or even the Lutherans in terms of what it means to be in relationship with God. Um, well, just because he fulfills those three roles doesn't mean those are two. Exactly. Exactly. I'm just when you said with these three things, what do you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's fine. Anything else? I think it makes perfect sense. Actually, it makes a lot. You really should. You should be sitting there going, he's systematizing this. I think so, too. Okay. What's she saying? I'm shocked. Yeah. He's, he make, this is kind of where I want to stop for a second. I'm like, this is a lawyer going, all right, let's put this together. Just just like um, a, a friend of mine is a lawyer who's teaching a Sunday school class uh, in Morton, and he, he just he loves to, to get tons of information and fling it at people and does it in a very systematic sort of way. And uh, now, what's interesting about Kirk is that I mean, even though he, he does a does a really really good job, he does it like a lawyer. In other words, it makes total sense consistently. But anybody who disagrees with him is an absolute idiot. <laughs> that's that's the way lawyers think because they have to when they're when they're in the courtroom. They don't say, "I kind of think he's innocent." You know, they sit there go, "He's innocent." You have to see he's innocent. Only a blind monkey would see that my client is innocent. And, and so, any good lawyer is going to say. This goes together. I figured this out. It's obviously true. Why on earth would you agree? It's kind of where Calvin is going. Except that I kind of don't agree. I mean, it makes total sense. Um, but he's very much, if you read the Institutes, it's very much, well, of course this is the way this is. And I tend to agree with him. And yet, every time I run into those passages, I tend to wince going, because it's lawyer talk. are pretty solid. Oh, no, I think it's great. I'm just saying that sometimes when people say, well, obviously, how could you say yeah. that this, is, this isn't, you know, this is wrong, you're like, 
well, you have to start with the premise, and that's where they're like, no, no, I agree with the premise. Well, then you're the funny thing is, as a debate coach, every time I hear somebody say, obviously, I go, right. that's where your hole is. You know, that's, <laughs> you're trying to convince me that you're absolutely right. That's where I should look. Anyway. No, wait a minute. Did he back up everything out with scripture? Yes. Did he say... Jesus is a priest because Hebrew is blah, 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 yeah, blah. No. Okay. He, he was copious about his, his, his connection with Scripture. Okay. In fact, Calvin would be aghast that people are calling it Calvinism. Because he's like, I, I'm not actually developing a Calvinistic systematic theology. I'm developing a biblical systematic theology. You shouldn't call yourself Calvinist. You should just call yourself biblical. Because you agree with me. So, he argued that the sacrifice that Christ made as a priest was a substitutionary atonement. He atoned for us by being our substitute. This is something that Anselm had argued centuries before. He paid for what we couldn't pay for. He stood there and took it on himself as a substitute for our pain. Humanity owed God perfect obedience. We were supposed to be perfect. And God said, as long as you're perfect, everything's copacetic, right? And we screwed it up. So I have to back up and say, why did he, why did he think you owed this to God? Humanity's interactions with God break into three covenants. Because an amazing number of things in Calvinism, three. There's, there, God is in three parts. Jesus had three roles. There are three covenants. Again, I'm not disagreeing with him per se, but it's very much a lawyer. Let me give you three reasons to do this. And within this, there's three subpoints of this. It's, it's easy to remember three, and he's good at three. Which well, that's why I grew up with three-point service. That's why people do three-point sermons. It's easy to remember three. Tulip is five letters. Yeah, but the Calvinists didn't come up with tulip. Oh, that's true. So there's a covenant of works that God set up at the very beginning with Adam. God created Adam. He had a perfect relationship, and everything he did was in perfect obedience. And then Adam and Eve screwed that up, right? And so God said, "Hey, you know, we're going to have to do a completely different covenant." Not in reaction to that, because God already knew all this, he's sovereign, but we're going to do a different covenant. Now we're in the covenant of grace, because the works thing didn't work out very well. Now we're doing grace. Because of what Augustine referred to as original sin, so now we keep going back to centuries and plumbing centuries before, uh, our, our works are utterly tainted. They're, they're destroyed. There's nothing that you can do to, to get back to that Adamic relationship with God. Perfection is no longer possible for you. So you got to do something where it's not based on what you can do. And so there's this new covenant that's made with humanity where God promises a Messiah who's going to save people not based on what they did, but based on unmerited favor. So everything in the Old Testament is through the covenant of grace, pointing to the coming of Christ. And, and Paul even argued that. He's like, even that, even that, uh, that law was there not so that you had works, but so that you would see you are no longer under the covenant of works. It doesn't work anymore. Everything pointing to Jesus coming. Now, what's interesting is when you talk to some people, they, they assume that the covenant of works is Old Testament, the covenant of grace is New Testament, but that's not what Calvin was getting at. Everything post-Eden is covenant of grace. The Old Testament pointing up to it, New Testament expressing how this is going to work out. Which leads us to the covenant of redemption where Christ is going to buy you back from sin. Um, this is what God intended. This is what's going to happen at the judgment seat. You get redeemed. Now, what's interesting is, a lot of theologians say, well, technically, it should be covenant of redemption, covenant of words, covenant of grace, in that order. Because God already knew from the get-go, before he ever created Adam, that he's going to do this covenant of redemption, right? If God is absolutely sovereign, and he predestines everything, and he knows everything in advance, then before he ever created Adam, he had to know he was going to create, um, he's going to bring about a Messiah and bring about a redemption. So, technically, God set up the covenant of redemption before he set up the covenant of works, before he set up the covenant of grace. Because a good Calvinist would say, none of these are the result of another one, because then that would mean that they stuff in this world brought things about instead of God bringing them about. Which, doesn't it make sense? I mean, it, it, do you think, would Calvin, just from what I've said so far, would Calvin think that you did something that through God, and now God has to do something different? So God knew in advance everything he was going to do. Don't, don't we say that even at Eden, God knew that he was going to bring Christ into this world? 
Even when he was creating, you've heard me say it before, even as he was creating the universe, before he ever created Adam, he already created the universe so that there would be an eclipse that centered over Jerusalem on the day that Jesus died. So he had all this figured out long before anything else. What were you going to say, Nick? You make a very good point, because that is something that some people brought up, is you can't really have a covenant until you have an agreement between two people. Now, what Calvin was getting at is, is that God is making an agreement toward humanity with his covenant of redemption. You can't, except, again, people will say, you can't make a covenant toward somebody. You can only make a covenant with somebody. That's the point of a co-venant. We're going together. You can make a promise towards somebody, but you can't make a covenant. And this is one of those times where there's a slight difference between those words. So there are some people that argue this is probably not the right word for this. Maybe a promise of this. Maybe an overarching atmosphere of. I get why I use covenant. I'm not even necessarily going to argue against it. But since you bring it up, that's a very good point, is that people said this is probably bad phraseology, especially since people have referred to this as covenant theology. Um, this has become known as covenant theology, which is part of why I'm forever having to explain to people what a covenant church is. Because people are forever coming up, oh, so you do covenant theology as opposed to dispensationalism? And I'm like, not necessarily. It's not the way that, that works. But, um, pardon me? <laughs> I said, I don't even know dispensationalism. Oh, it hasn't come up yet. It doesn't exist yet. I'll talk about dispensationalism in a couple of centuries. It's less than 200 years old. I know, it's newfangled. Um, but those are the two. Those are the two major differences of, of, of Protestant theology: the covenant theology and dispensational theology. A couple of years ago, actually, and I'll probably do this again in a couple of centuries. Um, but a couple of years ago, I, I kind of compared and contrasted and showed how we kind of meld some of that together, because there's a lot more bleed over than the two camps like to admit. But um, there are people who say maybe it shouldn't be called covenant theology because it's not necessarily covenant. Plus, as I, as I said. We don't even necessarily know the order because it depends on how sovereign you want God to be. You know? Because I decide how sovereign God is. Oh, you do? Well, then where have you been for 500 years? That's what you just said. All right, anyway. Covenant theology. Does this make a certain amount of sense? I'm not asking if you agree. Does this make a certain amount of sense? There you go. Now, um, oh, yeah. So, humanity owed God this perfect obedience. That's where we were starting with this. But we screwed that up, and so there's no way to give back to God what we owed him. Uh, even if you tried, it would be what you already owed him. So it couldn't pay for what you did, because you already owed him that. Exactly. That's the most that you could do. Besides... You're sinful, it's broken, the original sin. Remember Augustine, anything you do, even if you say, but this is going to impress God, it's all tainted. None of it impresses God. There's absolutely nothing you can do to get yourself back even to square zero. Because if you did everything right from this point forward, not only would you not get, the best you could do is get back to square zero, but since everything you're doing is tainted anyway, you can't even get back to square zero. You're just absolutely lost in this quagmire of sin. It makes a certain amount of logical sense from a lawyer's point of view. So, anything that you do to try to reach out to God to be saved, by definition, doesn't work. Even if you desperately want to, doesn't matter. You don't really. There's parts of you that are still sinful. It's tainted. You don't really want God for the right motivations. Yada, yada. You're doing it out of sin. You cannot reach out to God in any meaningful way. So, you're, you're only saved by faith, but even that faith itself has to come from God. We know that from Ephesians. So everything that you do is coming from God. Any movement toward God is coming from God, not from you. So even the desire for faith is itself coming from God, not from you. Okay? But you can in no way, shape, or form, therefore, be part of your own salvation. You can't be part of the process of salvation. Because everything that you do is coming from God, not from you. Anything, any part of you that is reaching out toward God is coming from God, not from you. Okay? I'm seeing people making frowny faces. But, but this, 
this makes logical sense coming from everything. Remember what Nikki was saying. If you start with the right premise, everything comes logically from it must be correct. But then but he also believes in free will. Yes. Once you get changed by God, you can freely choose to do God things. But until you've been changed by God, you can't. Nothing that you do is is coming from you. You are either being a sock puppet for sin, or you are being led by God to come to God. Okay. So like you said, it's the premise first. Mm -hmm. So it's a free to be responsible. Oh, I like that. What? I said I think that still puts more onus on the person than he's putting. Yes. Doesn't matter what. Well, I suppose it's going to say it doesn't matter what you want, but I suppose if you want it, you're going to say God did it. It's really good circular reasoning. No, no, any good. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> any, what did you just say? It's good circular reasoning in that you, you say, uh, but I do make good, I do want good things, but of course anything that I do want that's good must be coming from God. Therefore, it proves again that I'm not the one making that decision. Circular reasoning, but any good logic is circular. Anything that is logically consistently good is circular, right? It, 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 it supports itself. So then when we do something wrong, flip balls and we try, we don't mean us to do it. Or our sinfulness, our brokenness made us do it. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because other theologians are going to come forward going, but if God is behind absolutely everything that you do all the time, and God says... Everything good that you do is because I called you to do good. Everything bad that you do is because I withdrew my leading and allowed the sock puppet of sin to let you do this bad thing. Then theoretically, God is still sovereign over you doing the bad thing. He knew full well what you were going to do in advance and let you do it. Then how is God not the author of sin? Now, Calvinists would go, no, 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 because he, it's the sin comes from you. The sin comes from the world. The sin comes from that brokenness. Not from God. He is not wanting you to sin. Except if everything good that you do is because God intervened and made you do something good, and then everything bad is God consciously knowing exactly what will happen, not intervening. Technically, doesn't that mean that God is the one who is making sure that you sin at that moment? Because he could have stepped forward and made you not sin. But he knew what you were going to do and didn't let you do it anyway, consciously withholding his sovereignty over that moment. Doesn't that still technically make him sovereign over that moment? Oh, you guys are good, because that's another argument that comes, that's another way, not necessarily from Calvin, but from Calvinism, going, aha, no, God is not the sovereign over sin, i.e., he's making you sin, but since you live in a broken world, he's allowing you to do what you desperately want to do in ways that he will then be sovereign over to affect other people in positive ways, which does make a certain amount of logical sense. Then other people jump in and go, yeah, but he's still saying, I'm going to let you sin. I'm going to actually make sure that you sin, because I could easily step in and make you not, but I'm going to choose not to. I'm going to make you sin by allowing you to do it yourself, even though I'll use that for good. Okay. The quick and down and dirty answer, I'm not slamming Calvin, and I'm certainly not slamming the people that are slamming Calvin. What I'm saying is, is this gets convoluted, because the moment you sit there and you go, aha, I got it. I bet you don't. You know, and I'm not saying that there isn't an answer. I'm just saying I've spent a good solid 20, 25 years genuinely chewing on this and reading everything I can about predestination, free will, and I still keep finding holes in everybody's arguments. There's still something where... I've said this... Hold on for one second. I said this before, but there was a buddy of mine and I that spent the three years of seminary chewing on this. I mean, we could sit there over lunch. There was one time in particular he came over to my apartment in a rainstorm pounded on my door in the middle of the night and went, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. And we sat there in my living room, he's like this, and he, he outlined this extremely complex thing, and he's like this, this, it works. I figured out how God's sovereignty works with free will and sin, this. And I remember going, how many total sense? Well, wait, what about this? He's like, oh, I hate you. And got up and walked out of my, out of my, out of my living room. Yes, Jenny. No, no. Him, though. I'm not saying we're going to understand no, no. him in totality. 
but I'm going to link these two together because I think you're both right. Is God is not a God of disorder, but of order. He's not a God of chaos. He's a God of logic. It makes sense. Everything he does makes total logical sense. And so we can know that. We can understand that. But that doesn't necessarily mean we get the totality of his logic. It doesn't necessarily mean we understand how this all works in total. I mean, my, my dog can know that everything I do, I do for his good, and yet can sit there and whine and go, but I want another treat? I, I genuinely don't see why you don't give me another treat, because it makes total sense to me right now. If I don't give him another treat, it doesn't mean that I'm not being logical. It's just a logic he doesn't get in its fullness. Should we try to know God? Absolutely. Can we know God? Yes. Can we know God in his totality? No. And the moment we go, okay, I've got this figured out in its totality, that's totally our human nature going, I've figured out how to put God in my box. It's a very big box. It's a shiny gold box. It's a box I say God stuff all about, and yet it's still my box, right? And so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting that you both bring that up because, yeah, it, people have done this for centuries going, this, I've got this figured out. And it's inherently dangerous to do that. But don't people that really don't believe in God or really have big problems when we say, because I'll say that a lot, that, you know, my God's bigger than that. I can't understand everything. But don't they look at that as a cop-out? Sure. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, my, I'm sure my dog, if I say, no, you've had enough, I'm sure he sits and goes, well, that's just a crap answer. <laughs> you've had enough goodness in your life. I don't think so, Dad. <laughs> yeah. I think you just don't want to give me any more treats because somehow you're angry with me and I wag my tail and I look at you and I go, why are you angry with me? Yeah. Just like every kid. Um, I the same thing with you. <laughs> so what do you mean I've had enough speeches? Uh, somebody was, we, we had a party in our house on Friday. Somebody was throwing a ball around in my basement, big, big, big hard plastic ball. And I said, don't throw the big plastic ball in my basement. To which she threw the big plastic ball. That's not fair. Same thing. You sit there and you go, now, just didn't get why I was saying this. And, and so it seemed patently unfair at that moment to that person. So, same sort of thing. Um, I have two books on my shelf at my office because I get a tickle out of doing this. Uh, as putting books that disagree with each other on my shelf next to each other. But there's, there's yeah. So I, I, put, um, like I put Calvin's uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion right next to Jacob Arminius's uh, <laughs> theology because they disagreed with each other. Um, and I put, um, I, I put uh, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer right next, to, um, right next to a book called God in Search of Man by a rabbi named uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. J.I. Packer's like, we can know God. You should seek, not in its totality, but you should seek out God. You should get to know what you know about God and, and make decisions based on this. And Heschel argued, from a Jewish perspective, you can't know God. What are you, nuts? But God knows you. Let God work in you. You don't have to understand what he's doing. Now, technically, I think if these guys sat in a room for a couple of hours, at the end of it, they'd go, yeah, I totally see where you're going. But they're coming out from two totally different perspectives. So, I have a problem with language, like, you know, the, the sock puppet to sing, and, and it's like, you know, that's what they Kind of like that. Uh, Sarah's going, oh, 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 it's a lot like that. And I mean, I, I don't, like, it's either, like, it's either one or the other. Like, I don't know. I shouldn't struggle with it, but I struggle with it. Like, I've been chewing on that for years. Yep. And then there's the language in the Bible about being a slave to Satan, that God's slave to Christ. And, like, I mean, there's all that, that same language that is used for either side. I just, I chew on it and let it go. <laughs> and, and especially when, when, if, if you want to add an additional wrinkle to that, when the Bible's pretty clear, you're you're making a choice to be a willing bond slave. It's not that you are just automatically enslaved. You make a choice to be a willing bond slave. You go, so does that make me a sock puppet or everything but a sock puppet? Exactly what are you getting at with you choose to be a willing bond slave? Right, but this, Except, is, with this Calvinist argument, though, or Cal, Calvin's argument about um, um, Christ's sacrifice and Christ's Right. So let's go through that. Let's go through that because I want to make sure we go through this. 
A group of Dutch reformers uh, issued a remonstrance, a formal protest to the, to the, uh, to the uh, powers that be against the core beliefs of Calvinism. They said, I, I think, yes, he's systematically internally consistent, but he chucked a lot of scripture to make it work. He rounded off the, the, the pointed edges of a lot of things to make a square peg fit into his round holes. That's what they were saying. So they did this remonstrance, which is why they refer to as the remonstrance. That's, that was their original official name. You're saying he wasn't systematic. That's an interesting way of looking at it. They'd say, ironically, in being systematically biblical, he chucked things in scripture and didn't systematize several bits of scripture. And so we, we find him very intriguing, very God-honoring. He, he's internally consistent, and yet... He's only internally consistent because he made some things go away. If I say we've had nothing but good presidents the entire time that we've had presidents, and you go, well, what about this guy? What about this guy? What about this guy? And you go, ignoring those guys. We've had nothing but good presidents. Well, sure. Uh, look sometime at the, at, at the genuine, complete fossil record and all the, all the fossils that got pitched because they're um, uh, anachronistic. It's like, yeah, we found a Buick in the Cretaceous period, but since it couldn't have been from the Cretaceous period, obviously it wasn't. Therefore, you see a you see a very clear line from from bicycles to Model Ts to blah blah blah. You go, Buick! There was a Buick over here, uh, but there couldn't have been. Therefore, there wasn't. Yeah, it gets interesting. Anyway, they were led by a guy named Jakob Arminius, who was possibly the most strikingly handsome reformer of all time. <laughs> And, and yes, I let my beard grow for the last two weeks for one stupid Jacob Arminius joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering about it. <laughs> I am so trimming this puppy when I get it on tonight. Beautiful man. Beautiful man, Jacob Arminius. Anyway, Arminius and the Remonstrants developed this excellent five-point summary of Calvinism. As to saying, this is what, we, this is what Calvinists basically believe and there's problems with this, things that we struggle with. Today, in English, we use the, the mnemonic device TULIP to remember these five points. But then... They couldn't systematically get it down to three, because that would be helpful. <laughs> I, I don't think they were... Sure, yes, this is, this is their five point at Calvin. No, no. You'd have to have seven. You'd have to have seven, right? Because six would be horrible. All right. T in TULIP stands for total depravity. What does that mean, do you think? Pardon me? I said absolute. Absolute. Okay. Human beings are utterly, absolutely depraved. We can't do anything good. Everything we do is completely tainted by sin. It doesn't mean that everything we do is handlebar mustache evil. It just means even the best things that you do are tainted by sin. There's nothing that you can do. The love of your child is not a pure love. There's always going to be part of it where you say, I love my kid because he makes me feel good. I love my kid because she... It's so pretty. I love my kid because they're going to continue on my family line. And there's not, none of which is bad, but it becomes about you and not just about the child. Everything that you do has taint to it. Um, and so you cannot act in ways of honoring God. You cannot seek God out. None, no part of you is so pure that it can actually do this correctly. Even our attempts to reach out to God, we say, must by definition be ineffectual since you do it out of your sinfulness. Therefore, you're utterly depraved. Every bit of our moving toward God has to come from God himself. It's impossible to say yes to God's gift of salvation without that acceptance actually coming from God. So you cannot choose God on your own. You are utterly depraved. Doesn't that make logical sense based on everything that Calvin has been saying up to this point? But wouldn't you have to have also have the premise that after baptism we're clean and a new person and towards righteousness? And then I'm thinking, I think I can love my kid pure intense instead of just for And now you get into Calvinism where you're going to have different Calvinist arguments. Some would say, Calvin would say, yes, you can you can, you can, can have some purity after you've been saved. Now you'll never be perfect, you'll never be sinless, but you can have some purity. Other Calvinist theologians afterwards go, no, you're still broken. You still bring your sinfulness, this echo of your sinfulness with you. You're depraved. Um, this is one of the main things of a lot of Puritan strains. They're like, I have to into being pure every day. Um, because by definition, if you don't focus on this every day, you're going to slide into utter depravity. You were going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say that I think that's 
Okay. By the way, I mean, anybody that's familiar with Calvinism, jump in and go, eh, if, I, if I'm, I'm trying to be good with what I know, but yeah. They would argue Jesus didn't trust their faith, that Jesus gave them faith, and the faith that they step out in is faith from God. But nobody chose God on their own. When we get to the Arminians, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with a little bit of that. Second, the you. Unconditional predestination. If you are utterly depraved, that if every bit of your move toward God comes from God, then... Uh, our predestination as children of God has to be based solely on God's will, God's actions, God's choices, not on any decisions or actions that we make. We are unconditionally predestined. It has nothing to do with you because you're totally depraved. Everything to do with what God has done in you. God chose you regardless of who you are. You're chosen to be saved by God since before the beginning of time because God knew everything that was going to happen long before it happened. Just like those who are not saved were chosen to be condemned before the beginning of time. God created some people for salvation, some for condemnation, some for glory, some for destruction. Um, even quoting a couple things in scripture about, you know, can't the potter do that? Can't he destine some things to just be smashed against the wheel? Gets to do that. Um, if that's the case, then the atonement is limited. That's the L. Since God knew before the beginning of time who was going to be saved and who wasn't going to be saved, then the atoning work of Christ on the cross was by definition for those who were going to be saved. If he died on the cross to save people, and he knew full well, if I die on the cross to save people, and I know full well you four are the only ones who are going to do it, I don't suspect it, I know. I created you to do that. The rest of you I created to burn in hell. You are the four that I, expect, I created to be saved. And I'm going to die on the cross for those whom I want to save, then by definition, I'm just dying for you for, right? That's bogus. No, it's logically consistent! I don't... That's not my point. I'm... Well, I'm just saying that a friend of ours who grew up in church and Which is awesome! And, and two-ip Calvinists would, would chuck the L. But 
the argument here is it would be a waste of Christ's blood for him to die for people that he knew was not going to accept him. Can we contrast this with Rob Bell's? Oh, no, I'm not going to Rob Bell. Yeah, yeah. Neither neither Calvin nor Arminius would would like that. At all. I the I is for irresistible grace. Since God knew before the beginning of time who was and who was not going to receive His grace, there's no logical way for a sinner to resist grace. If He knew that Emily was going to be saved, He created her to be saved. He predestined her to be saved. He only died for her. Then how is she ever going to go? No. Like, well, then obviously he was incorrect in what he knew. And God is never incorrect in what he knows. So therefore, there's no way that the people who are predestined to be saved could ever not get saved. So it is irresistible. You cannot receive it based on your own desires because you're totally depraved. And you can't refuse it based on your own desires because even the desire to receive it comes from God in the first place. If God wants you saved, you're going to be saved. There is no way to say no. Ever. Though you have free will. So they for people that we pray for to become Christians, they're telling us we're you know, the ones that probably will say no at the end. We're wasting our time. But but you don't know who it is. Right. And and you're still seeking out God's will, so that's still you being obedient. And you don't know who's gonna be saved and who's not. But I look at this and think, gosh. I probably don't deserve it at all compared to everybody. That's nothing to do with deserving. I know. That's what I'm saying, though, is it's pretty hard to say that I received this irresistible grace when I would have been the one God chose, or a one But God chose you based on grace. That's why it's called grace. It's not based on anything you've done. I know that. I mean, I understand the grace part. I just mean their logic doesn't. Fair enough. Okay, there's a P. I got two it. I got two lead. Um, perseverance of the saints. Since God has known who can and will be saved since the beginning of time, and since we can't accept or refuse his gift, since his atoning grace will never be wasted on those who aren't predestined to be saved, you can't lose it once you've got it. Right? This makes logical sense based on everything that's come before. You can't not get saved if he intended you to be saved, and you can't unsave if he intended you to be saved. No one is truly regenerated in Christ can never be not regenerated in Christ anymore. Makes total logical sense. So anybody claiming to have lost their faith, faith must never have been saved in the first place. Even a good Arminian would go, yeah, that's possible. Sure. Now, Arminius, the remonstrance said, okay, we disagree with some of this. Total depravity? No, actually, we kind of agree with this one. Arminius is like, no, I'm pretty much sure we're, we're pretty much depraved. I'm pretty much sure we're lost in our sins. Even our saving faith is a gift from God. Um, yes. We can't do this on our own power. I'm, 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 with, I'm with Calvin on that. Now, later Arminians, people follow Arminius, because they aren't Armenians. Armenians are from Armenia. <laughs> Please do not ever call Arminians Armenians. That is like a big... That and when people say revelations. Those are like nails on a chalkboard for me. <laughs> Revelation, and there are Arminians. Later Arminians said, no, we disagree with Arminius. Um... And the, the Imago Dei, the image of God in us, is enough to draw every person. They can choose whether or not to come to the Lord, but it's the image of God that's in every single person. They, they go to Romans 1 and say, everybody has this God-shaped hole in them. Everybody knows God is calling them. God has this prevenient grace that's calling the whole world. It doesn't have to require a specific intervention saying, uh, duck, 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 goose, you get to be saved. No, no. People can come to the love of the Lord because there's already a move of God drawing everybody. But that's not technically what Arminius was saying. But that's what a lot of later Arminians have said. And they say, now we do disagree with that whole unconditional predestination thing. I think it's more of a conditional predestination. We don't have absolutely no part to do in our own salvation. They cite John 3.16 saying, whoever believes will be saved, not the other way around. Whoever is saved can believe. No, no. It's whoever believes will be saved. And, and, and in fact, I had a conversation with somebody, and again, I'm not here I'm not trying to argue for Arminians or against Calvin. But I do remember on this point having a conversation with somebody a couple years ago 
where they kept saying, but you have to be regenerated before you can believe. And I finally said, is there any verse anywhere in the Bible that puts it in that order? That specifically says, you have to be regenerated, and then you can believe. You go with the Westminster Confession, which I think is a really good confession, but there's no actual scripture verse to back that particular order of events up. Which is not to say that Calvin is wrong, just there's a hiccup here that you need to address. Um, Arminians oftentimes then would be, that people would say, oh, you got a works-oriented salvation because you're bringing it about. That's not what Arminius was saying. Remember, he said, no, I'm pretty sure you can't bring it about. This is God bringing it about. <laughs> what they're referring to when they say conditional predestination is the fact that the elect are predestined for eternal life with God. If you are a Christian, you are predestined for eternal life. Whether or not you become a Christian is based on your choices. But you have predestination. Now, again, part of you should sit there and go, well, that's elegant. And part of you should say, yeah, so it's not... I'm, I'm predestined if I happen to fall in this camp, and I'm not predestined to fall in this camp. Is that really predestination? Is that really the best word for that? I think it's like the church is predestined to spend eternity with God. Whether or not you're part of the church is up to you. Straight out, later Arminianism. Not agreeing or disagreeing. But, it, it, but there are, again, pros and cons to some of these ways of thinking. But that's the argument of what they mean by conditional predestination. Arminius said you have free choice in whether or not you become a Christian. But that prevenient grace is open to everybody. That door is open. So it kind of opens the door for more an unlimited atonement, right? They look at John, 1 John 2, 2 and say, he died for not just you, but everyone, the whole world. There are whole verses about that he died for the whole world. He wishes everybody to be saved. It's open to everybody. You have a free choice, which is why the Bible is forever talking about the need to choose God. Make a decision for God. Choose the right thing. Choose which day, you know, this day, whom you're going to follow. Over and over and over again, it's expressed as you have a choice. And it's open to everybody. Choose God instead of this world. Arminius would say, all this is based on God's prevenient grace. It's open there already. And on the imago dei in you, the image of God in you. So it's all still coming from God. But you still have to allow that work going on in your heart. So there is no waste of Christ's blood. In fact, more than one Arminian theologian has said, exactly how many drops does it take to save somebody? Is it one drop per person? How many drops did Christ shed on the cross? That is a crap analogy. I love you, but you can't say each drop is one person saved. Therefore, we don't want to waste any drop of the, this blood. He bled out and died. The blood, en toto, paid en toto. You can't sit there and go, there's a one-to-one -one correlation of a drop. Well, half a drop is actually actually a molecule of blood. It's all, stop. How Native American are? Yeah, exactly. Stop. It's that he bled, not the individual drops he bled. It washes you clean. But all this leads to a resistible grace. If you can choose whether or not to follow God, then grace is something which can be resisted. They talk about Stephen's God-inspired sermon telling people to repent that got Stephen stoned by the Sanhedrin, right? And they quote 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, and they say time and again, you see that people do what's contrary to God's will in their lives. God says, this is what I would like. And people go, yeah, no. God says, I want, I want everybody to be saved. And we go, yeah, no. So apparently, according to the Arminians, grace is resistible. Um, and he, Arminius would argue this doesn't deny God's sovereignty, but allows us, it, it's committed to allowing us free will within his sovereignty. Um, he's still in charge of the whole thing, but that doesn't mean that, and, he, and he, Arminius even said, Calvin said we have free will. I just disagree with his description of what that is. But Calvin says we choose. We just can't choose without God, and I agree with him. I just think he takes that a step too far is all. But I agree with him that we can choose, and that even that choice comes from God. Okay.
that there is something where God says, I'm still sovereign, and yet I will not exert my sovereignty so fully over this point. I've got to get to P. All right. Uh, by the way, later Arminians rejected this and said, no, God's sovereignty is kind of like a really good chess player. He knows what's coming in advance. He can gauge it based on what he figures is probably coming up. And again, Arminius would have banged his head against the wall and said, no, he knows. He knows what's coming up. It's not, I'm really good at guessing. Said, no, no, he's sovereign. Anyway, last one. Logical bit. If, if our predestination is conditional, if the atonement is unlimited but we can still resist it, technically we can potentially apostatize, can't we? We can technically lose our salvation. They cite Deuteronomy and say, you know, covenants say, I will promise to bless you and you will follow and, and do what you're supposed to do. But if you don't do what you're supposed to do, I will curse you. That is part of the covenant. God is not not following the covenant if he curses you after promising blessing because you didn't do your part of the covenant. Because people will sit there and go, ah, oh, but how can God ignore his part of the covenant? He's, he's not. Look at Deuteronomy. This is how covenants are set up. Um, and then they look at warnings like John 15, 6, and 1 Corinthians 15, 2, and Hebrews 6, 40. All these different warnings going, apparently you can fling God's blessing back in his face. It's not something you trip over and accidentally fall into, but, but apparently you could theoretically apostatize. Um, these warnings should be sobering Christians. They shouldn't be frightening Christians. It's not like you can trip in a hole and go, oh, I think I lost my salvation. You would have to fling it back into his face. But they say, I think you could probably do that, at least theoretically. It's not that you can't lose your salvation, but it would be hard to do. Now, later Arminians rejected this and said, no, Theoretically, you can lose your salvation just if you sin subsequent to becoming a Christian. If you sin, you lose it because you've fallen off the wagon. Different perspectives on this. Now, you can understand where Calvin sees this and goes, You crazy heretics! But the first part, they would just go, No, no, Arminius, you're wrong. But this is the question. It's complex. Can you or can you not lose your salvation? By the way, this is what everybody likes to argue about today. They do. A tulip is the that people have the most problem with. As we've gone through it, most of us seem to have a problem with the hole, right? right. But most people don't worry about the hole. They don't think about the hole. They think about the And so this bugs people. Um, they ignore the, the theological rationales for it, and they just say, nuh-uh. And they get very emotionally upset with one another. It becomes very visceral for them, and it ceases to be theology. And so they, they, they throw dogmatic questions at each other. Well, if you want to know the covenant relationship with God, how can God remove salvation? How can you ever trust God if he can give you salvation and then take it away? Well, how do you want to into a covenant relationship and go to your part of the covenant and still expect that God's going to do his part of the covenant? That's not right. So God is supposed to be holy and yet atheists into heaven who sit there and say, I hate God because... They once said they didn't. Is that, is that how this works? No. Both of those are completely unfair questions. They're both ignoring what the other person is saying. Or, if you can lose your salvation, how can anyone ever have any assurance of being saved? Well, if you can't lose your salvation, what's preventing you from doing whatever you feel like doing? Just because you're in with God. Again, totally disregarding what the other people are saying. Because the Arminian, the Arminius Arminian, would say, of course you can have assurance of your salvation. You'd have to fling it back at God. And the Calvinists would sit there and go, no, you don't get to do whatever you want. You should honor God, but you should do it because you're saved, not to get saved or to stay saved. The interesting thing is, is as much as people argue about, this is the least important part of TULIP. Because where the rubber hits the road, daily walk of faith thing, it is not crucially important which one is right here. If people look like Christians, act like Christians, proclaim that they're Christians, both Calvinists and Arminians are going to go, I'm pretty sure they're probably Christian. I might be wrong, that's not my place to judge, but I think they're probably Christians. If people renounce their faith, both Calvinists and Arminians will go, I'm pretty sure those people are not Christians. They say, oh, I'm not a Christian, I hate Jesus. <laughs> both Calvinists and Arminians are going to go, probably not a Christian. Both sides are going to say, obviously, they probably never were Christians. Or the Arminian might add, or maybe they were at one point, but they ain't now. And they might not be in the future. Now, there are some that say, no, once you've lost it, you absolutely lost it. Menno Simons came along and said, no, 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 you can get it back. So, 
different different ways of looking at this. But if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? Both sides would say that. If it doesn't do these things, it's probably not a duck, whether it ever was a duck or not, right? Does that make sense? So ironically, the very thing that people argue the most about, probably not a big deal. And it's not what they would argue about primarily in the, in the 1500s. That was not the big one. Yes? Of course, um, the prevailing view of What would you like to argue is the prevailing theology of today? Now, since Randy's not here, and really have to finish, I'm going to pretend to be really tall and say, that is not what a good Calvinist would say. Exactly. It's what a good dispensationalist from Dallas Seminary would say. Yeah. yeah. Not everybody that calls themselves a Calvinist is a Calvinist. They just happen to glom onto some of the things he said. Just like most of the people calling themselves Arminians would be people that Arminius would go, oh, please don't slap my name on this. Realize, Arminius wasn't even trying to do a systematic theology. Arminius was going, I see holes in Calvin's theology. But yes, there are people who sit there and go, yeah, you can lose your salvation at the drop of a hat. I was in the Assemblies of God in college, and I was amazed how many people would sit there and go, I just don't feel God today. I hope I didn't lose my salvation. Like, if, like you had a hole in your pocket, and it just happened to drop out because you weren't noticing it. And you're right. The prevailing notion from people who try to do Calvinism today pew-sitting people or people who haven't thought about their theology, what have you, will sit there and go, once saved, always saved. All you need to do is say the sinner's prayer and then you're cool. Neither of those perspectives would be Calvin or Arminius. Those are all nifty things that we've developed over the last 500 years. Okay, so I really need to end now. We'll come back and we'll finish up Calvinism and we'll go into Mennonitism the next time we meet in three weeks. Um, but, that's right, yeah. But, I want you to walk away realizing what these guys were trying to do. Both Calvin and Arminius were trying very hard to say, let's go back to the Bible and let's try to be systematic about what we're doing. Let's not chuck anything. Let's try to really understand how this all works together. It may have been abused by various people after that, but they were trying very hard to think very logically and very biblically about stuff. This stuff is more complicated than most of us tend to think about, which is not to say we shouldn't try. We should try. Just show some grace to the people that figure it out differently than you do. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to, to delve into your word and to try to understand it. Lord, I thank you that you call us to spend a lifetime trying to understand your word, trying to know you, because we can know you. And yet, even if we spend a lifetime in it, we realize the complexity is beyond us. So thank you, Lord, for being for being close enough to us that we can wrap our head around you and understand your heart, and yet being so infinite that there's no way we'll ever fully understand you this side of the Thank you, Lord. Walk with us every day as we work on this. In Jesus' name, amen. The long pointy beard. No way I was going to grow that one. Oh, I really wanted to try to do it. I ruined that. Okay, I'm going to go into the restroom and try to comb this out now. <laughs> <laughs>